And we're going to begin tonight where we ended, or not ended, but where we were for the bulk of our time this morning in Daniel chapter 9. So uh, let's turn there. A couple questions on Daniel chapter 9, then we'll branch out from there to uh, some of the other questions, uh, excellent questions that were turned in. So Daniel chapter 9. Uh, One of the questions that was asked is uh, why the breakdown between or the breakup, whatever term you want to use, we we know that this prophecy covers (coughs) 77s, and then why the breakup of the first 483 years is broken down in verse 23, uh, no, I'm sorry, verse 25, to seven periods of seven and 62 periods of seven. Why not just say 69 periods of seven, that's 483 years, and then the final seven years, why this breakup or breakdown, whichever term you want to use or phrase, of the first 69 sevens. You see there in verse 25, note therefore and understand uh, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens and 62 sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So why not just 69 sevens? Why this, this division? And the answer is sort of hinted at here. Because the first seven sevens, the first 49 years, is sort of the time it took to rebuild uh, the wall, the the streets, uh, sort of, you could say, Nehemiah's career, uh, the close of the Old Testament era, basically, and then you have the rest of it there. So the the hint is even given here why you're going to take 49 years and divide them out from the other total, I don't remember what the number is, that would make 483 years. So that's the answer to that from best we can tell, though it's not stated specifically, both from the hint here in this verse and what we know about the chronology when you do the math. That seems to be why there is that split of the 69 sevens. The next question, I don't know if I'll be able to find it, but when we come to it, I'll just uh, pass it because uh, we'll answer it now. And that was, uh, I don't see it here, but we'll get to it eventually. And that is the question, how do we know that these 69 sevens, or these 77s, are not weeks of days, but rather weeks of years? And the reason we know that, the answer is twofold. One is this, uh, when Daniel wants to talk about weeks of days rather than weeks of years, that is specified. Let me show you what I mean. And, and just go right on into chapter 10. Now remember, There were no chapter divisions when this was written, so we're just continuing on. And in verse 2, Daniel says that this, chapter 10, verse 2, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning, my translation says, three full weeks. But literally is, I was mourning three weeks of days. So in other words, we know that these weeks here are what we would consider a normal week, weeks of days, seven days in a week. Uh, so that, that modifier is not used in chapter 9. It's just 77s or 70 weeks. So we have to determine, are those weeks of days? Well, it's not, it's not specified like it is in chapter 10. And the other clincher, really, is simply the math or the chronology. If you do the math and you go from the starting point of the prophecy in verse 25, from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, if you try to go take these as weeks of days and do the math, there's absolutely no significance to where you land. None. I mean, you just do the math and there's nothing in history that is significant. But when you do the math of weeks of years, 
you come out exactly on Palm Sunday, or what we call Palm Sunday. So both the wording in the book of Daniel itself, so internal evidence, and then external evidence when you do the chronology or the math and take, take this as not weeks of days, but rather weeks of years, it fits perfectly with how the prophecy unfolds that there will be the Messiah presenting himself and then the Messiah, verse 26, being cut off because that happened just a few days after the triumphal entry. And then after that, you've got the, uh, the uh, in verse 26 there, the city being destroyed and the sanctuary, the temple. So it all fits perfectly. And in fact, I would say this. It has always just been, I don't know what word to use, but startling to me how many of our Christian brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord, love the Word, but who have a different theology on who Israel is and who the church is and the end times and all that, how they sort of fight this. I mean, it just, you don't have to, you know, it makes a case for itself. It just makes sense. You just do the math and just add it up and it just all fits perfectly. And yet there are so many Christians, again, I'm talking about conservative, Bible-believing Christians who would uh, be more in the camp of covenant theology that we're the new Israel, the true Israel, spiritual Israel or whatever, but they get really nervous at Daniel 9 because they don't like how it unfolds. They just don't like the math there. And I've never been able to figure out why this resistance when you don't have to force it, twist it. It just, you take it for what it says, you do the math, and it's like, wow. Uh, are we, we shouldn't be surprised that God is so specific and so detailed and, and so forth. But there are many. You need to understand that. In fact, just before the service, I had a, a couple of good friends of mine, a neat couple, who said, now, boy, this is new to us. We're learning this stuff. And but this isn't how we were raised. And how, how do people try to, you know, do some of this stuff like Mark 13? How do they, you know, abomination of desolation, what do they do with it? And I said, well, basically they try to say it's all fulfilled in A.D. 70. So none of this is futuristic. It's just all uh, a technical term for that would be preterist uh, theology. So it's all in the past, nothing in the future. All right, next question says this. Um, uh, over the past two weeks, you have not mentioned the rapture, nor have you mentioned it in your book, The Last Days. It is spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. If I understand the Bible correctly, believers will not be here during the tribulation. Why do you not mention the rapture? And the simple answer is because the rapture is not in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, and therefore, that's why I'm not bringing it in. Um, as you noted, it is in 1 Thessalonians 4. But that was not Jesus' focus in the Olivet Discourse. It was the future of the Jewish people, what's going to happen to them. So I don't feel the need to bring in something else that's really not in the text if I'm just trying to unfold the text. So I also believe that the evidence is strong for a pre-trib rapture. So I would line up, whoever, I don't know who asked this, but I would line up with you theologically or hermeneutically, uh, but... It's not in the Olivet Discourse, either in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse or Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse. So that's why I haven't brought it in and probably won't bring it in as we go through Mark 13. All right, next question kind of comes out of this morning. Uh, do we know that the Antichrist will be in the form of a man? Is it possible that the Antichrist uh, may take the form of a female? Uh, well, I would say not. no from this standpoint. He is always referred to, whenever he is referred to, as masculine. Masculine pronouns are used of him. In fact, I would even say this. He will not merely take the form of a man. He will be a man. He will be human. So it's not like this is 
The Antichrist is Satan taking on human form, sort of like the incarnation where Jesus became a man. Uh, he will be a man, but he will be empowered by Satan. And one other possible piece of evidence for this is that when he is described in the book of Daniel, uh, it says that he will not, uh, the phrase is, you know, uh, the, he will not regard the desire of women. Now, we don't know exactly what that phrase refers to. Uh, some, because, some believe that because Jewish women wanted to be uh, the, the woman who gave birth to the Messiah, that it's saying he will have no regard for the Messiah. That's possible. But many commentators uh, believe that it's referring to the fact he will have no interest in women, but at, rather will be homosexual. Can't be dogmatic on that. Uh, so to sum up and answer your question, I don't think there's much of a chance whatsoever when you look at all the data on the Antichrist, the he's, the personal pronoun, masculine pronouns, etc., um, singular masculine pro, personal pronouns, etc. All right, next question says this. Um, uh, Pastor Brian, why is Obed counted as the son of Boaz? This comes from the book of Ruth. You remember the story there? According to Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6 and Ruth 4, 10, it appears that the firstborn should be counted as the son of the dead. Please explain. Uh, and I looked at this, and I'm not sure I understood the question. So if I don't answer your question, what you meant, you can catch me afterwards. But uh, he was the firstborn. It appears that Boaz had never been married or was a widower. But when he and Ruth married, then their firstborn was Obed. And so that is why he was counted as the son of Boaz. So I'm, I'm not, I may be missing the question. I don't know if maybe you're saying, should it have been considered Ruth's son? Well, he was Ruth's, but Boaz and Ruth's son. So again, I may be misunderstanding the question, but he was the, their firstborn, the firstborn evidently of, um, of Boaz. So uh, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm tracking with the question there. All right, next question says this. Uh, if the Jews will sacrifice and worship in the temple for the first three and a half years, wouldn't it have to be built before the tribulation begins? Um, no, I don't think it would have to be, but it certainly could be. The follow-up question, or will, or will they build it really fast? Well, as I mentioned this morning, there is a group, more than one group in Israel, ready to build the temple. And interesting side note, every year this group petitions the Jewish Supreme Court for the right to go up on the Temple Mount and rebuild the temple. Every year they've done this, I don't know how long now, and every year the Jewish Supreme Court denies them. But the point is, the group is ready to do it. So if the Jewish Supreme Court allowed them to, they could have a functioning temple built literally in a matter of, you know, I don't know the exact time frame, but three weeks, four weeks, I mean really early in the tribulation period. So I don't know of anything that would necessitate that it has to be built before, because when it talks about them being able to worship in the temple for three and a half years, you know, if it was shy three weeks, it, it still would be for the first three and a half years they're allowed to, to be in the temple. So uh, may be built beforehand, uh, but if not, it, it, it will go up really fast. They're ready. They're ready to get up there and build it, uh, and they would do so very quickly if granted the right to do so. All right, the next question uh, is not from here, but it, well, it is. It is. Revelation 13 answers this question. So turn to Revelation chapter 13. And the question is this, will everyone be required to take the mark or just the Jews during the tribulation period? Well, 
Very clear. Revelation 13 verses 16 and 17 say this. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one, notice that, not just the Jews, no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So this is, this is universal throughout the earth, not restricted by any means to the Jewish people. All right, next question. This one I had to apologize to the person looking around to see if she's here tonight because this one was turned in uh, last, last month. And uh, I got it, and I stuck it in my coat pocket. And, and then la- and like two weeks ago when I was in Chicago speaking at that banquet, I reached in my pocket for something, and I pulled out this question. I thought, oh, no, this person thinks I purposely dissed her. And, you know, and I was, uh, so I caught her and said, sorry, I think you turned this in. She said, yes, just laugh. She said, I said, I'll answer it next, next go around. So here we are. Here's the question. Uh, why do we remember Daniel? by his Hebrew name and his fellow Hebrew captives, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by their Babylonian names? This is a really good question, because if you remember what happens in chapter 1 of Daniel, when Daniel and his friends are taken captive, they're all given different names. Uh, And we all know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Most Christians probably couldn't remember the name that was given to Daniel. So why is it we know those three by their new names and Daniel by his name? And I think the answer is this. Because the chapter, Daniel chapter 3, where you have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, uh, chapter 3 is sort of the chapter that makes those guys famous, right? And so they are called in that chapter by the king because they won't bow down. Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we'll give you another chance. If you're willing, you can bow down. So he uses their names throughout. That's sort of the event that makes them famous. The event that makes Daniel famous is probably Daniel in the lion's den. That doesn't happen until chapter 6. That's after the Babylonian Empire has fallen. And now the Medo-Persian Empire is in place because that was uh, a Medo-Persian issue there about uh, a Medo-Persian king and government that, that uh, ended up putting Daniel in the lion's den. Of course, you know the story. He was tricked. The king was tricked to do that. Uh, by others who sort of set him up. But the point is this. By that point, the Babylonian Empire was gone. The Babylonian Empire was the empire that gave Daniel his other name. And so when you come to chapter 6, he's referred to by his Hebrew name, Daniel. So I think that's the answer why we remember Daniel by his Hebrew name, because the story that makes him famous, he's referred to by his Hebrew name because we're past the Babylonian Empire. But the story that makes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego famous is chapter 3, where their Babylonian names were used throughout it. All right, next question. Let's turn to Philippians 3. Again, this, uh, this one is not really on Philippians 3, but I think this will answer um, Philippians chapter 3. Uh, and the question is this. Are people who go to the church of Christ Christians? Uh, the church of Christ, as you may or may not know, uh, has a few unique doctrines. Uh, one is, this one's just, it's not nearly as significant, but uh, no musical instruments in their worship. They believe it's wrong to use musical instruments. Uh, but the more serious unique doctrine of theirs is called baptismal regeneration. Uh, Acts 2.38 is sort of their champion verse, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. 
And so uh, they hold to the doctrine that's known as baptismal regeneration. That is, the way you are saved is through being baptized, by being baptized. In fact, I was in a drive through here not too long ago. I was behind a car, and, uh, and it had on the bumper sticker was Acts 2.38, and it said, Conversion by Immersion. And I knew exactly where these people were coming from. This is, you know, 99% chance this is Church of Christ. So it's a valid question. Are people who go to the Church of Christ Christians? And here's the answer. It depends on what they are trusting in for their salvation. It's the bottom line. If they are trusting in baptism for their salvation, no, they're not Christians. Because if you trust in anything for your salvation, your church membership, your confirmation, your, you know, your baptism as a baby or your baptism as an adult or, you know, whatever, your good works, you, whatever list you want, you're trusting anything but Christ. You're not, according to the New Testament definition, you're not a Christian. So the answer is depends on what they're trusting in. And I want to illustrate it from Philippians 3, because I want you to notice all these good things in Paul's list. He says this in verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have more confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Circumcised the eighth day. By the way, that was from God. God told his people, circumcise your male babies on the eighth day. And this in, in the Greek is literally eighth dayer. I mean, Paul's saying he was an eighth dayer. Of the stock of Israel. It was a good thing to be Jewish, chosen people, privileged to get the word of God, of stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, the only tribe that stayed loyal to David when all the other ten tribes broke off. That was quite a deal to be from the tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew of the Hebrews, which probably means that by Paul's day there were many Jews because they were dispersed who didn't speak Hebrew. They were, uh, they spoke Greek. Uh, They sort of absorbed into Greek culture, uh, and they were called Hellenists. Paul said, not, not I. I'm no Hellenist. I'm Hebrew of the Hebrews. I speak the Hebrew language. I keep the Hebrew culture, not the Greek culture. Uh, so Paul had all of these things, and then he says this, verse 7, but what things were gained to me. And by the way, all those things were good. All those things were good, but what things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I count all things loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them, my translation says, rubbish, scubalon in Greek, dung, manure, that I may gain Christ. Now, why in the world would Paul use such a strong term to refer to such good things? I mean, why do you look at the fact that you were circumcised the eighth day, like God said, as manure? Why would you look at being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, you know, a tribe of Israel, you know, I mean, tribe of Benjamin, the stock of Israel. Why would you call all that dung? Here's why. Because if you're trusting in that for your salvation, it damns you. So anything you're trusting in for your salvation compared to knowing Christ is dung. So this shows Paul's attitude towards something that's even a good thing. Now listen, baptism is a good thing. Jesus was baptized. Jesus himself was baptized, which, of course, does pose a problem for those who believe in baptismal regeneration. If you say baptism washes your sins away, which is the basic definition for those in baptismal regeneration, then now you've you've got to really dance a jig to get around the fact that Jesus was baptized. Were his sins washed away when he was baptized? 
But anyway, Jesus was baptized. He had all of his own followers baptized. John 4 is clear on that. After the day of Pentecost, there's not one record of an unbaptized believer. Baptism is very important. If you're trusting in it for your salvation, it's dung. It's manure. Because it will damn you to hell if you're trusting in that for your salvation and not in Christ. So, in answer to your question, again, are people who go to the Church of Christ Christians? Depends on what they're trusting for their salvation. If they're trusting their baptism? No. If they're trusting in Christ and they think, and here's, here's a, a, a very distinct possibility, many in that, that, that denomination or church think that's the way you trust Christ. Okay, then that's not, that's no different than some Christians who think the way you trust Christ is walking an aisle. Well, walking an aisle for an invitation doesn't make you saved, but if you think that's the way you do it to trust Christ, then you know, it's a little misguided, but at least you're trying to put your faith in Christ. You just think, well, this is the way I have to do it. Well, there are some in that who think, I need to put my faith in Christ, and the way you do it is by getting baptized. Fine, then that's, it doesn't cancel anyone out. Um, so they could be baptized thinking, this is how I place my faith in Christ, but their faith is in Christ, then according to the New Testament, they would be Christians. All right, next question says this. Hello, Pastor Brian. Uh, did people have last names in the Bible like we do today? And the answer is no. That is why you often see something like David, son of Jesse, or, you know, James and John, sons of Zebedee, because they didn't have last names. So the way you identified a person, because they're, just like in our day, a lot of people have the same name, John or Peter or Mary or whatever. So how are you going to differentiate all these without last names? Will you do it by saying, well, Mary, the daughter of so-and-so, or Peter, the son of so-and-so. They didn't have last names, but that's the way they identify. All right, next question says this. Uh, what if someone dies but has never heard of Jesus Christ? Now, please listen closely to the, to the way I'm going to state this, because I think it's very important that we're accurate with the, the delineation of this. What happens, what if someone dies but has never heard of Jesus Christ? Here's the answer. They will be damned not for a lack of response to what they never heard, but for a lack of response to the light they had in creation and con conscience to point them to the Lord, and they didn't take advantage of that light to turn to the Lord from their sin. So they will be damned not for a lack of response to what they never heard, but because they are sinful, we're all sinful, and, they, and for a lack of response to the light they had in creation and conscience to drive them to the Lord. And that is what Paul argues in Romans 1, especially when he says in Romans 1, 2, and 3 uh, that they are without excuse. No one, listen, beloved, understand this, Absolutely no one will ever stand before God someday and say, I, if I'd have just heard, I would have been a committed Christian. So the only reason I'm going to hell is because I never heard. That will never happen because that's not true. It's not the reason people go to hell. They don't end up in hell because they haven't heard. They end up in hell because of the problem all of us have. We are sinners and because of our rebellion and because we don't respond to the light that God gives in creation and conscience. I mean, think about it. Not only do people not respond to the light in creation and conscience, they fight it. I mean, look at, 
Look at, I mean, this whole doctrine of evolution. Look how convoluted it is just to fight the simple basic truth that God is creator. And look at all the ways people fight their conscience today. I mean, there are so many ways, you know, just keep something stuck in your ears all the time. So you're listening to something all the time so you don't ever have to think. Or deaden your senses with drugs, illegal or legal drugs, alcohol, whatever you have to do so you won't think and listen to your conscience. So people fight creation, they fight conscience, and they will be damned for their sin because of fighting creation and conscience but not damned because of a lack of response to something they never heard. All right, next question. This one's sort of interrelated to the question a couple of questions ago. How do I explain to someone in Catholicism that baptism isn't essential for salvation? Well, just gave a lot of information on that. But in addition, of course, you could have passages such as Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the story of the thief on the cross ought to, seal the deal. I mean, that in and of itself. Uh, John 3.16, John 5.24, maybe the strongest passage, though. Uh, This is really such a strong passage. This is one you ought to really know well and use if you don't. Turn with me to Romans 4. Romans 4. And in verse 3, Paul quotes the famous Old Testament verse of salvation, which asserts justification by grace alone through faith alone, which is the same doctrine as the New Testament. Verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him, credited to him, imputed to him for righteousness. So how did Abraham get saved? If we want to use New Testament theology or terminology, how was Abraham saved? By faith alone. And then Paul elaborates. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, if you work for something, it's not grace, it's not a gift, you're owed. You are owed. So therefore, what Paul is saying is, listen, if salvation is by works, then you do works and God owes you. He owes you salvation. But here's the contrast. Verse 5 But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. No clearer verse in all the New Testament on the worthlessness of works for salvation. Him who does not work, but believes on him. And notice how Paul describes God. It's a tremendous description. Him who justifies the ungodly. God is the one who justifies the ungodly. Now let that thoughts sink in. God justifies, and remember justify means to declare righteous. So God declares us righteous when we're actually ungodly. You say, ho, ho, ho. That doesn't sound right. God declares us righteous, so God's playing games. God says, they are ungodly, but I'm just going to say they're righteous. That's what it sounds like. Notice it does not say, he first makes us righteous, then declares us righteous. No, when God, in justification, when God declares us righteous, we're still ungodly. Because the doctrine of justification, or the truth of justification, does not change who, who we are, or I should say it this way, what we are, 
or what we are like, it changes our standing with God. Let me say it another way. When the moment you placed faith in Christ and God declared you righteous, you were ungodly. You were still ungodly. Now, God begins through the doctrine of regeneration to make us godly, but when we are saved, we're ungodly because salvation is not by works. You don't earn it. To him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So, again, coming back to your question, how do you explain to anyone that baptism is an essential for salvation or anything else that people put in the list? You know, church membership, confirmation, whatever, all these works. It's not by works. This could not be any clearer. The, the New Testament teaching is salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our next question says this. Uh, in our community group uh, questions, there was, one, uh, there was one question. What was God's greatest judgment on earth? We had many thoughts, but would like to get your answer. Well, in my opinion, the greatest display of God's wrath and God's judgment is the cross. Think about it. It's one thing for God to judge sinners. That's to be expected. But to judge his flawless son, who became our representative, really shows the severe but righteous wrath of God. Thus, it was... When you contemplate it, the most severe judgment on planet earth. When God poured out his righteous wrath on his son. So that's how I would answer the question in that, or answer that question. All right, next question is this. We don't need to turn back to it because the question is, is worded so well. It, you, you'll get the sense of it just by the question. It says this, what does Numbers 15, through 29 mean by an unintentional sin? At first, it seems obvious, but it looks like God contrasts it with a presumptuous sin in verses 30 and 31, for which there was a death penalty. To what does the presumptuous sin refer? Does this imply a third category of intentional sins that most of the sacrificial law deals with? I don't think it implies a third category, because as I read through this passage again this afternoon, it seems pretty clear that God is dealing with two kinds of sin— unintentional or intentional, which is called presumptive. So sins of presumption are uh, sometimes referred to as sin, sinning with a high hand. In other words, you know it's sin, you know it's wrong, you just willfully say, I'm going to do it anyway. I don't care what the consequences are. And as, as you stated, the consequences for intentional presumptuous sin was the death penalty. But there were unintentional sins, right? So we, and some of these may have been related, they're not made, they were related to the law. There were many laws, and it was probably difficult for the people to keep track of all of them and keep them straight, and they could have unintentionally sinned. It's not the only kind of unintentional sin. Uh, you may have, you know, uh, something happen, you know, what's, what's something you think of? Let's say you're, uh, you know, you're walking along and someone just uh, comes up and out of the blue just slaps you in the face. And all of a sudden, your anger, you... You know, you grab them and you throw them down and you think, whoa, 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 hold it, hold it. You know, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. So, you know, throwing them down and giving them a punch and then backing off, is, is that a sin? It's a sin. That's not the way we're supposed to respond. Is it a natural response? Yes. Is it a godly response? No. So, unintentional. You're not planning on it. You're not intending to do it. It's just circumstances come together and 
You're not, you know, it's not premeditated. I'm going to go out and do this, and I'm going to go out and do that. So in that passage, God divides up the sins of the people into unintentional sins that is not preplanned, not premeditated, not intentional, uh, or presumptuous sin, which would be intentional. You, you know God says no. You know the consequences. Sin with a high hand, I'll do it anyway. And the death penalty was in place for that. All right, next question says this. Um, it, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here in this section, Paul is dealing with the importance of purity. And uh, he says, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we forewarned you and testified. So verse 6 there is 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, an indication of a special judgment by God similar to what we see in 1 Corinthians 11. You remember 1 Corinthians 11? For this reason, many are sick among you. Some are sleeping or are dead because of the way you're dishonoring the Lord's table. So does this seem to be a similar type of thing, a very unique situation of sexual impurity, not only sexual impurity, but taking advantage of defrauding his brother or sister in this manner. So does this seem to be a, you know, an indication of special judgment? And it does. Yes, it does appear. This is a unique special judgment. Now, we're not told how God would you know, uh, exact his judgment in this type of situation, but it is obviously a very strong warning, not only about sexual impurity, but especially sexual impurity in taking advantage of or defrauding uh, your brother or sister. So, yes, it, it's a sober warning that should be taken that way as a special kind of, of warning of judgment. All right, this question is the one that I already answered earlier. I may have missed your explanation, but why didn't Daniel 9 does the NASB use the term weeks instead of years or sevens? Uh, the reason why is because it can be translated weeks, but it can be if translated weeks, interpreted as weeks of days or weeks of years. So it's not that weeks is really a bad translation, but the more literal is 77s, and we just have to determine is this sevens, sevens of days or sevens of years. Okay, next question says this. Um, uh, in our weekly small group Bible study, we are considering sanctification. Uh, turn to, by the way, turn to Hebrews 10, and I'll read this one so that we're there. Hebrews chapter 10. So in our weekly small group Bible study, we were considering sanctification. This discussion recently centered on when the process of sanctification begins. Seems like there are different perspectives on this. Some are influenced by authors like Charles Ryrie, others by John MacArthur. Is there a simplified way to explain sanctification when it begins? Well, as you probably know, sanctification is just the theological term for spiritual growth. Uh, and it begins at the moment of salvation. And that is because there is both a positional sanctification spoken of in Scripture and a practical or progressive sanctification. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 10 of Hebrews 10 says, By that will we have been sanctified 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So that's positional. We have been. When we trusted in the sacrifice of Christ, we were at that moment positionally sanctified. Because the word sanctified simply means set apart. So we were positionally set apart at that moment. But skip down just a few verses, because here's a great verse. And, and for whatever reason, not all of our English translations translate this really well. And I can't remember. I've looked this up before, so I can't tell you which ones do or don't. But I'll, I'll read it as literal as I can, and then you can compare your translation. But this, this really is the best way to translate verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, the reason why that translation is so important is because you have the first part of that verse, by one offering he has perfected forever. Well, that's verse 10 that we just saw, that through one offering, the offering of God, we have been sanctified. That's positional sanctification. But, verse 14 says, by one offering he has perfected forever those who, and this is a present passive participle, those who are being sanctified. So what it's saying is those who have been sanctified are being sanctified. In other words, there is a positional sanctification. Then God begins the work of progressive sanctification. So um, in answer to your question, when does it begin? Well, it begins at salvation positionally, and then it also starts in effect practically because those whom God has sanctified positionally, he commits himself to the process of sanctifying them practically. And that's verse 14. It's very similar to Paul's statement in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you. So he begins it, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. All right, next question says this. Does God love everyone or only believers? John 3.16 says God loved the world. Psalm 5.5, God says, I hate the workers of iniquity. So does God love everyone or only believers? I, I am convinced scripturally God loves everyone. Because 1 John 4 tells us God is love. It doesn't say merely God loves. God is love. It's like saying the sun is bright. The sun is warm. Whoever gets in the way is brighted, if that's even a word. you know. Whoever gets in the way is warmed because it's just what it is. So God is love, which is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in talking about God's goodness and love, he causes his rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. He gives the sun to the just and on the unjust. So you should be like your father. You should love everyone, be kind to everyone. So if God doesn't love everyone, then that breaks down in the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is saying you ought to be like your father. Well, if he doesn't love everyone, then you don't need to love everyone. But God does love everyone. God can love and still have, and here's where, like Psalm 5, God can love. This is, this is hard for us, maybe almost impossible. God can love and still have a holy hatred that is not contradictory. But we so often bring all of this emotional baggage into it because when we think of hatred, we think of, you know, just despising someone. And de- but God can love and still have a holy hatred And why we can have other statements like God is angry with the wicked every day, the psalmist says. So, yes, I believe God loves everyone, but he does have a holy hatred that is not contradictory. All right, next question is this, uh, John 16. Turn with me to John 16. 
it says, Do we have the Holy Spirit working on our hearts before the point of salvation, convicting us of our sin and softening our hearts toward the gospel? Or do we have no interaction with the Holy Spirit inside of us until salvation? Well, if you hadn't put the word inside, it would be a really easy question to ask. But even with that, I would say, according to Jesus' statement in John 16, verse 7 through 11, that yes, the Holy Spirit does convict and work on us prior to salvation. Because in verse 8, Jesus said, when he has come, he will convict the world. And John uses that term often in his gospel in contrast with the people of God. So these are not believers. He'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me, etc. So this is indicating that the Spirit of God works on the world, if you will, on unbelievers. Now you say inside of us. Well, it's a little more difficult to how, how to quantify or describe that. Is he working from within or working on your conscience, on your heart? Without even trying to divide that up, just take it that the Spirit of God does convict the world. Uh, next question says this, where did the believers of the Old Testament go when they died? Well, uh, Luke 15, even though, I'm sorry, Luke 16, even though it's in the New Testament, you need to understand it's prior to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So there's a sense in which Luke 16 is an Old Testament passage. And we see there that, uh, and not only there, but we see there that believers in the Old Testament era went to Abraham's bosom, also called paradise. You could simply say with the Lord. Uh, this is brought out further by the fact that God said, I am in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Exodus. After Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you remember Jesus used that to prove life after death. So he is saying, God is saying, I, it's not that I was their God. I still am their God because they haven't ceased to exist. They're still here with me, and I am still their God. Uh, next question was the Holy Spirit. Uh, turn back to 1 Samuel 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. And the question is this. Uh, was the Holy Spirit a mark of salvation in the Old Testament? since it was taken away from certain people. You're right on that. I don't think it was a mark because uh, the Spirit would come and go. Uh, David, when he prayed, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, he saw what had happened to Saul. I don't think David was saying, you know, don't, don't make me an unbeliever. Don't make me lose my salvation. I, he could have been. I'm not, you know, dogmatic on that. But I think what he's saying is, God, I sinned, and I could send your Spirit away just as Saul did. Um, and so you follow up, and I'm sure you're wrestling with this, was Saul a believer? Uh, I think he was. A lot of Christians don't. Uh, I think he was because of 1 Samuel 10, verse 6, where it says this. Now, I know this can be taken different ways, so this isn't sort of the silver bullet that answers it. But it, this is a prediction to Saul. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And let it be when those signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you and offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that was Samuel speaking to Saul, that God gave him another heart, or God changed his heart, and all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. 
Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. Again, there are different ways you can take that, that this was just for his kingship. It's a possibility. I th- take it that Samuel, uh, I mean, that Saul was converted here. The reason most Christians who don't believe he was is because of his later actions. They say, well, that doesn't seem to be a believer. Um, you could probably say the same thing about Lot, and yet Peter called him a righteous man. So I, I believe he was, and I respect those who don't believe that. I, I understand where they're coming from. All right, last question is this. Uh, what is Calvinism? That's a real quick answer, right? So what is Calvinism? Uh, in case you're not familiar with it, uh, just remember the acronym TULIP. If you want to understand Calvinism, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints. So that is Calvinism. Now, I'm glad you didn't ask, is it true? Is it biblical? Is it right? You didn't ask that, so I'm done. I told you what Calvinism is. That's what it is, okay? Let's stand as we close in prayer. Father, thanks for our time together, not only tonight, but this Lord's Day, and thank you for a chance to be with your people. It's always a joy uh, just to fellowship, to interact, share life, share burdens, share prayer requests, share joys. Thank you for that. Thank you for time to join our our voices together with your people, to uh, immerse our hearts and minds in your word. Thank you for a good day. And as we uh, leave here, may we always be conscious and mindful of the call on our lives to be salt and light. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.